Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. In this episode, I'm very lucky to speak to Glenn Cross, who is going to talk to us about chemical and biological warfare in Rhodesia between 1975 and 1980. In this episode, then, we're going to be looking at some of the improvised and more sophisticated weapons that were developed and fielded during this conflict and try and cover as much ground as we can while keeping it under an hour. I very much hope that you enjoy today's episode. So, Glenn, it's really wonderful to have you uh, along today. I was lucky enough to read your book, um, which I must say deals with, even for this this show, some of the sort of darker aspects of, of the human condition and, and the war that this program occurred within that we look at today uh, was itself uh, abhorrent. And in that context, there was also the CBW element, which, I mean, I must be frank with you, I mean, I knew little about the Rhodesian War. I knew even less about the fact that there had been a chemical and biological program, as small as it was in that context. So I'm really happy to have uh, you on the show today. I guess the best way uh, to start, because previous episodes, the way people find their way into this field and this issue area always seems to be quite convoluted. So why don't we start with uh, you giving us a brief introduction to your background? Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me, Brett. To, to start, I began life basically as a Sovietologist, and this is you know in the dark days of the Cold War, and uh, got hired by the government, but found my way doing WMD stuff. First, I was doing uh, Soviet Intermediate Nuclear Forces, and then I found my way into weapons of mass destruction in general, and focused on CBW issues. Did that for a long while, and it, it's always been a, a theme of my career and my activities since my retirement. But um, I, I sort of, again, I, I fell into CBW. And at, at one point, I decided to, uh, already had a couple of graduate degrees, but decided to pursue a PhD. And uh, fortunately enough, um, a new program was starting up at George Mason and uh, under Ken Aliabek. So had him uh, as uh, an instructor and as my Ph.D. supervisor, uh, which was uh, enlightening in a lot of ways. It's interesting, you know, find out about a program, you know, firsthand from somebody who was involved. And then I got interested in Rhodesia again, completely by accident. Uh I got to know a bunch of former uh, soldiers in the Rhodesian War, both Sulu Scouts and uh, Rhodesian SAS uh, types, and uh, heard all about the use of CBW because they heard about my background. So it, they enlightened me about the Rhodesian CBW program, which embarked me on a on a PhD 
in a sense, because I was in the program and I decided that would be my, my dissertation topic. The dissertation then morphed into the book. And uh, that's that's sort of my introduction. Um, that's wonderful. Thank you. So um, I'm sure Ken Alabek will come up uh, more and more in this in this show as as we go on. Um, certainly not necessarily for a few years yet in terms of the, the slow pod through the ancient history. Where I think we're still in the 15th or 16th century or something. But uh, in terms of um, specials from other guests that we're going to have on as well, I think. That, that character will certainly make a few appearances. So I think you know, the, the best place to start here is to talk about the Rhodesian conflict in sort of broad strokes, really, in terms of the kind of geostrategic context and also the, the character of that conflict and how it was emerging. OK, well, uh, let me set the scene for uh, the Rhodesian conflict. So many of your audience may already know Rhodesia is now called Zimbabwe. It's an independent country, uh, gained its independence uh, in 1980. But from 1923 to 1980, it was a uh, British possession. Uh, it didn't like to be called a colony because it was self-governing, uh, one of the few British possessions that was completely self-governing with home rule. It was uh, settled by British colonists in uh, the 1880s, 1890s, and uh, it's roughly the size of uh, the U.S. state of Montana or comparable to Spain or Syria in geographic size. Okay. Had a very small white population, European settlers, mostly British. At the During the conflict, they were only about uh, at a height, maybe 270,000. I think the last census was like 255,000. In a population of 5 million indigenous African people. So the white settlers uh, governing this territory were a small, infinitesimally small percentage of the overall population. But they uh, they had sole rule. And um, British Prime Minister um, Harold Macmillan, in his uh, 1960 speech, Winds of Change, promised basically the African, the, the, the British African colonies independence. And by 1964, 65, all the neighboring colonies had gained their independence. Nyasaland in became Malawi. Northern Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. It uh, became a Zambia, sorry. And uh, the Rhodesians wanted their independence, but the British government insisted on majority rule. This was going to be a sticking point. The emerging African political parties within uh, Rhodesia placed all their trust and faith that the, the British were going to solve this problem and grant them control, governance of the, the new country, again, under the, the precept of majority rule. Instead, in November 1965, the Rhodesian government, the white Rhodesian government, declared unilateral independence from Great Britain. Britain refused to intervene uh, militarily for fear that many in the British military had served with Rhodesian officers during World War II, that there may be a mutiny within the British military, a refusal to take up arms against the Rhodesians. The British government declared went to the UN, declared Rhodesia a threat to world peace, and uh, imposed an embargo and sanctions on the Rhodesian government. The lack of any strong action by Britain forced the African nationalists to basically take up arms. They were going to fight for themselves. And... It began rather clumsily and disorganized in a disorganized fashion. 
with uh, acts of sabotage and attacks on uh, remote isolated farmsteads. The Rhodesian security forces had basically penetrated these movements, and for a long while they controlled the war. They knew when and where the attacks were going to occur, and the uh, Rhodesian security forces were very successful in uh, controlling the insurgency. There was the April uh, Revolution in Portugal, which led to Portugal's largely abandoning its African colonies. The new Marxist Rolimo government in Mozambique opened its doors to Zimbabwe's Zanla forces, uh, giving them basically a safe haven along a new long uh, border. So the insurgency now no longer was confined to merely within Rhodesia. It now had this basically a second front. And those are the, the forces coming out of Mozambique. At that time, the Rhodesian Intelligence Service, the Central Intelligence Organization, said, we can't win this war. And they said, it's like emptying a bathtub with a teacup and both taps running. The Rhodesian political thinking wasn't in line with the, with the intelligence services assessment. And rather than a, a search for peace, there was a, a search for how do we even the odds? And it basically, we need to reduce the number of guerrilla forces to a manageable le- level and to funnel them into killing zones along the border. So insurgent forces entering Rhodesia from Mozambique along this long, undefensible border would be funneled into killing zones. At that point, we have to enter into a couple of our personalities. So I want to set the stage. The Rhodesian Minister of Defense at the time was P.K. Vanderbilt, a, a South African of, to put it modestly, a very eccentric personality. P.K. Vanderbilt believed that to win the war, the Rhodesians needed to take the bayonet to the insurgents. Well, that's that's hard, kind of unrealistic. He had all sorts of other crazy ideas about uniforms and bloody ideas. But in P.K. Vanderbilt's uh, social, highly conservative, and arguably racist social circle, were a number of influential people, one of whom was a professor of anatomy and physiology at the Rhodesian Medical School, the Godfrey Huggins School of Medicine. A Scottish-born agricultural chemist named Robert Symington, who for some reason was teaching anatomy and physiology at the medical school. Bob Symington had a um, a hobby as a, as a tinkerer with toxins and poisons, and he had come up and presented to P.K. Vanderbilt a suggestion for a chemical biological warfare program, and that this would be highly effective against uh, the insurgents. And of course, this this captured the imagination of the rather eccentric, odd Vanderbilt. He brought it to the attention of that the political, the military leadership. Again, he was minister of defense. So eventually, this thing evolves. It, it, the, the plan's accepted, and it is managed by the Central Intelligence Organization, and they have the overall oversight and responsibility for it. Day-to-day operations are given to the British South Africa Police, which is the Rhodesian's gendarmerie, a special unit, a counterterrorism unit, headed by a chief superintendent, Michael McGuinness, Mac McGuinness. 
And Mac McGinnis is the intelligence and police head. So the Saluda Scouts are a special operations force of the Rhodesian Army, but they have as a component this intelligence and police entity uh, under McGinnis. Head of the Saluda Scouts is a Lieutenant Colonel Ron Reed Daly. Mac McGinnis has a co-equal rank, and they sort of have co-equal standing with Ronnie Daly controlling the army operations and Mac McGinnis controlling the intelligence and the dirty side of the Saluda Scouts. The dirty side, by that I mean the, the more covert. So, Ronnie Daly came out of World War II, served in, in the British Army, British Special Forces, SAS, went on to Mal- uh, Malaysia, part of the Malay Scouts, very distinguished career in, in Special Forces, and, you know, by all accounts, a remarkable leader of men. Mac McGuinness came out of the hard scrabble streets of South London. Father had been a policeman turned pub owner. McGuinness shows up in uh, Rhodesia, joins the BSAP, and is, by all accounts, a rough, thuggish character. He has a, a warm, nurturing, domestic side, but that's little seen. And, uh, McGinnis is uh, very different from Ron Reed Daly. And there's a there's a squad of about 12 to 18 BSAP special branch that are assigned to the Slew Scouts under McGinnis. McGinnis is charged with running the CBW effort. Symington would assign promising uh, students out of the medical school or his own lab assistants to do their call-ups. As, as good Rhodesians during the war, they had to do military service, and these individuals selected by uh, Symington would show up at a fort in Bendura, which is north-northeast of the capital, Salisbury, with letters. And they would show up at the gate, present their letter, and uh, address to McGinnis, and the letter would basically say, you know, put these individuals to work and, and pay them. And they all seemed to have been paid very handsomely. There were only at any one time, maybe four to six of these individuals showing up. And this is a fort that didn't have laboratories or any sort of specialized facility. They acquired industrial and agricultural chemicals, largely pesticides, uh, parathion. And they then contaminated clothing, hats, undershirts and underwear in the parathion, and dried it on corrugated tin sheets in the air. And um, McGinnis had a great relationship with a Greek Cypriot store owner in Pandora, who would ensure that none of the clothing had Rhodesian labels in it, it had South African labels, it had labels, so that insurgents would see that it wasn't, you know, Rhodesian origin. And this store would provide a lot of the clothing, the hats, you know, that sort of thing. And contaminated also were foodstuffs, um, beverages, usually with thallium and mealy, uh, which is a coarse ground cornmeal, a staple of a uh, Rhodesian African diet with uh, like warfarin. So these students were largely mass producing these items in the courtyard of the Bandura Fort. So the way this program largely operated is that the Rhodesians had recruited a good many what were termed contact men. Insurgent groups entering into Rhodesia often carried mostly ammunition with them. 
And then once they were in country and had established themselves in an operating area, they needed to be fed and clothed. So they had established clandestine means of reaching out to a contact man. Well, many of these contact men were recruited by paid informants of the BSAP through McGinnis. And the order for goods, you know, there would be a shopping list provided to the contact man. He would then provide it to McGinnis's team at Bindura. The material then would then go through the contact man to the insurgent group, whether they be contaminated cigarettes, drinks, vitamins, laxative. The list of poisoned items is extensive. You know, underwear, hats, jeans, and then the group would get them. And sometimes, you know, villagers would actually be paid to, to poison insurgents. And a good a good segment of the insurgent groups would, you know, members of them would sicken and after three, four days pass away. Often in very unpleasant ways. Of a second order effect to this was uh, insurgent groups often blamed the, the villagers, the neighboring villagers on whom they uh, had sort of come to rely and would have, as was termed, witch hunts. And they would then execute suspected witches amongst the villagers, which soured relations. So villagers became hesitant to aid insurgents because of fear of witch hunts. And insurgents became fearful of relying too heavily on, on villagers for fear of witches. Um, program continues. Uh, according to some of the existing records, which are very few, up to 1.809 insurgents were, were accounted for as, as having passed away as part of the CBW program. And that's because McGinnis paid the contact men. He, he paid them per death. Now, there could be some, you know, some issues with that about overcounting because of greedy contact men. But if we take the documents on, on their face, uh, at least for a period, it got, we got up to 809. Um, and of course, the program continued long after that, so the number likely uh, in the end is much higher. And of course, the program was compromised in a couple of ways, and, and the Rhodesians had to adapt and change change their tactics. But we have, to, just to describe the sources for all this, we have uh, you know statements from McGuinness uh, detailing all of this. There have been a few books by some of his subordinates detailing their roles in, in this. We have a few documents by a member of the program. He stole the documents out of McGinnis's files towards the end of the war, hoping that he might uh, benefit financially from them. And he was also highly embittered. His wife died of cancer and he was dying of cancer and claimed that in both cases, it was because they had participated in the uh, in the handling of these, these poisoned items. And the, the poisoning wasn't just clothes and uh, food items provided through contact men. In some cases where a guerrilla group was, an insurgent group was operating in an in a area, these materials were stocked in a, a store that McGinnis believed was going to be raided by the groups. And a lot of times the contact men didn't provide the stuff directly to the insurgents. They were buried in caches. 
for the insurgents to find. And that led to a couple of very regrettable accidents where village boys had found a cache of tinned bully beef, for example. And uh, many of the villagers, I think in one case, up to eight villagers died of eating thallium-contaminated bully beef. And uh, the plant that produced it in Rhodesia was part of a large international consortium. Uh, and Rhodesia had happened to have been one of their largest uh, suppliers of beef, had to shut down completely because of allegations that the plant was contaminated. And that was largely a fiction created by the uh, BSAP at the time to hide the fact that they were poisoning food. Some of the food uh, stocks actually got into the insurgent camps in Mozambique. Uh, and there's some interesting documents of how some of the some of the insurgent leaders refused to eat the food in the camp, had to be provided food privately because they, they didn't trust the food. It was okay for their their uh, their troops to eat the food, but it wasn't okay for them to eat it because of their suspicions. During one of the large uh, Rhodesian incursion raids into Mozambique, one of the Salus scouts who was leading a leading a team. After all the fighting was done, the camp had been taken. They had had a tremendous adrenaline rush, and as a result of coming down from that, they were crashing off the adrenaline and developed horrendous headaches. And they raided the infirmary. This is the insurgent infirmary. And as they're chomping down on their, their painkillers, uh, a special branch officer comes running up to him and says, stop, you know, tells them to stop, stop. All that stuff, a lot of that stuff has been poisoned. There's no way of telling what's been poisoned and what hasn't and what they've consumed and what they haven't. And that was too late for them to be case vaxxed to a hospital that they're probably going to, if they had perchance consumed any of the contaminated painkiller, they'd be dead in a few minutes anyway. So, um, at one point during the conflict, Symington remarked that his efforts, the CBW efforts, were more successful in a month than the conventional activities of the Rhodesian army in eliminating the terror, the, they termed a terrorist. I, that's a political charge word. Oh, the insurgent threat. Clearly, at, Points in the conflict, the Rhodesian CBW effort perhaps was more successful in in body count, if we want to use that horrendous term, than uh, the Rhodesian military was. And that was largely because the insurgents avoided conflict with the Rhodesian military. Uh, if there was an encounter with the Rhodesian military, they, as the Rhodesian termed bombshell, they scattered and fled. The guerrilla efforts were largely, again, a, focused on ambushes, on convoys, attacks on isolated farmsteads, uh, and sabotage. Yet the conflict continued to grow, and, you know, regardless of how effective any of the Rhodesians' efforts were, whether the conventional military or uh, CBW, nothing was going to be decisive in the Rhodesian favor. It was, it was a losing war, and, you know, the the opportunities uh, for a, a peaceful solution were always sort of ignored. Henry Kissinger, with the 
help a, a, of the South Africans uh, approached the Rhodesians and basically said, look, there's no way you can win this. And again, that, that fell in line with the Rhodesian intelligence assessments. So, so thank you for that introduction. I mean, the program itself um, certainly was essentially a poisoning and campaign. And I guess I've got a couple of questions which came up from my reading of of your work on this. The first related to obviously this poisoning campaign was relatively sustained. As I understood, it, it was a couple of years. Is that right? Uh the program probably was first suggested in '76, and coincidentally if not because of the portuguese withdrawal from mozambique and the awareness that the rhodesians were facing a dire security situation it was it was facing a calamity so it was probably first broached in 76 and it probably began earnest efforts at full speed by April 77. It continued from 77 through 79. So about two years, probably mid to late 79 when the Lancaster uh, agreements were being negotiated about Rhodesian independence. So December of 79, uh, as part of the Lancaster agreement, the Rhodesian government, the white dominated Rhodesian government, turned the reins of the country over to uh, the British government. And Rhodesia resumed being a fully-fledged British possession under the governance of uh, uh, Lord Soames as the governor general. And once that happened in December, all military operations were supposed to cease by both sides. So... I would say April 77 to September, October 79 are probably fair dates. I mean, in terms of the awareness among the insurgents that they were being poisoned, and you suggested that these activities, of course, were occurring in a quite a chaotic environment and one where certain information didn't necessarily travel quickly and was quite patchy. You said also that there was disinformation as cover for some of these poisonings as well. So mm-hmm. the insurgency groups may have had some awareness that there was perhaps a poisoning campaign. There was also, because they were in field, local units would have been basically facing hunger and so would have been acquiring stuff, living off the land as it were anyway. So it'd been quite difficult to prevent that happening even centrally if they were sure this was happening. As far as whether or not any information became public, there was allegations by, uh, I'm, I'm trying to recall, I think it was Edson Satole, uh, that he had been poisoned on a flight with consuming baked beans and that he had been poisoned by the Rhodesians. And he made allegations that, uh, made the international press. The, um, Insurgent intelligence elements. So Zipra, which operating largely out of Zambia, they had an intelligence officer, Jeremy Brookhill. Their intelligence organization was called the NSO. Jeremy Brookhill claims that during the war, the NSO had penetrated Rhodesian intelligence and had 
full awareness of the Rhodesian CBW program. There is uh, one BSAP document that said, you know, we've had some compromises. We need to take steps to minimize these compromises. In one document by McGinnis, he writes that, you know, insurgent awareness of what we're doing is forcing us to change our tactics. Um, so, yes, they did. It, it was probably a spotty awareness. Um, clearly, some of the insurgent leadership knew that foodstuffs were being poisoned. I had a conversation years ago with the then Zimbabwean ambassador to the UK, who at the time was a primary school teacher in, in, in a village in a rural setting. And he recalled uh, insurgents being poisoned. And so, but let's put this in, in a context in which the insurgents might have actually seen it as they experienced it. Um, Mark Lang wrote a book about uh, the Shona belief in witchcraft. And so, we step back, uh, about 80% of the African population of Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, is Shona, a Bantu people, and about 20% are uh, Matabili, which are uh, a Zulu uh, splinter group. The, the Shona have in their, again, most of the population of Zimbabwe is nominally Christian, but there's still a, a strong current of spiritualism. And in Shona spiritualism, there are witches and ghosts, and the witches act through poisons. And unexpected, unusual deaths are attributed to witches and witchcraft. And there is a large uh, African pharmacopoeia of poisons, um, much of which I don't think has even been explored much by Western uh, pharmacology. But in a setting that many of the insurgents may have found themselves falling sick and ill, having visited or eaten with villagers, they might suspect that uh, it's it's attributed they would attribute it to witchcraft and poisoning by witches and then as a result we see the the witch trials the insurgents on the ground experiencing this may not have attributed it to the Rhodesians and then that creates a tension between the villagers and the insurgent groups that we see McGinnis comment on a couple of times in the documents it's, to, to the Rhodesians it was an unexpected um, but not unwelcome second order effect. So, one thing you touched upon there was the broader geopolitics, and in a few moments' time, I guess we're going to talk about South Africa. And we're going to talk about potential two-way links between the South African program and the Rhodesian program. I guess before we do, it's probably worth, we talked a little bit about Matt McGuinness, um, but it's probably worth talking a little bit, was it Symington or Symington? Symington. 
Symington in a little bit more detail. Um, reading the book, uh, he emerged to me as quite a significant character and one who, as you noted at the beginning of the talk, you know, was a, a tinkerer. I think in any other context, it would be referred to as an unhealthy interest in, in toxins. And certainly he's just, he, took, he seems to have taken home with him in the evenings. And as I understand it, in addition to the more industrial scale poisonings, he seems to have taken it upon himself to also experiment with more exotic types of poison and potentially attempt to try them out or certainly advocate their potential use as well as part of this broader CBW program. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other work that he seems to have been engaged in beyond the industrial scale stuff, more speculative work. So he's at the university. He, a bit of an odd duck. I've spoken to a number of his medical school students and many of them found him interesting, but admittedly an ardent racist. He actually had some physical conflict with, um, some black students at the university, uh, which made the, the newspapers at the time. A lot of the, the black students referred to him as bullet headed. He also had a, and had written extensively about the pineal gland. Uh, and I have yet to figure out what his obsession with the pineal gland was, but published in PubMed. You can go to PubMed and read his articles on the pineal gland. Also in PubMed are his, at least one of his articles on the sexual, sex lives of African adolescents. Um, you know, which I found truly bizarre, but he seems to have had an obsession with that too. Many of his students, he uh, have a, a fondness, a loyalty to him. Uh, admittedly, you know, they, they admit his eccentricities. Um, one of which you touched on in a major part of his involvement in the CBW program is uh, interest in toxins. And in the back of the book are, is a five-page document from Symington, which lays out all the possible poisons and, and toxins that could be applied, and a lot of them are insect venoms, snake venoms, some um, mushroom poisons, uh, toxins derived from uh, mushrooms, some rather exotic and, and odd ones, um, as well as some rodenticides and even compound 1080, which is used to kill large mammal predators like coyotes and wolves and, and, and some interesting other exotic poisons. He had a laboratory in his home in Barrowdale, which is an upscale um, district of Salisbury, now Harare, um, in which he tinkered. And uh, there are accounts that the BSAP special branch actually paid to have this laboratory built and stocked. Um, there's a, an account um, by one of his former students, I know, who said that he actually uh, 
was rushed to hospital in critical uh, situation uh, from an accidental poisoning as he in, as he experimented uh, and that he barely survived that incident. Um, but, you know, he, he did continue to tinker and and work with his lab assistants and his medical school students um, on his on, on the poisons. But it was almost a hobby like stamp collecting. Uh, he was always interested in find, finding new and novel poisons. I don't know the extent to which he was aware of the African pharmacopoeia. So uh, a prominent Rhodesian uh, pathologist I met commented about this, the extent of this native pharmacopoeia. And that was just truly amazing. And uh, the Shona word is muti, which is their word in medicine. And I don't have any indication that he um, experimented with any of, of the muti. But um, his, his list of Western poisons is, is fairly extensive. And he describes their properties and how they're acquired and handled and all the rest. So he continued. And he left Rhodesia, Zimbabwe in 1980 and went to Cape Town and continued uh, teaching at the University of Cape Town. And in 1982, all the press accounts were that he died while swimming. And again, one of his medical students told me that wasn't the, the case. He died of another accidental envenomation because he continued to take his hobby with him to South Africa. And to this day, the, uh, South African Anatomical Society's prize for, you know, best student of the year is the Bob Symington Award. I contacted them once and asked if they have any pictures or anything of Bob and, uh, they refused to <laughs> respond. But okay. I have only one very grainy class photo that has Symington in it, actually. But so that's the story of Symington. I doubt that the CBW program would have even been conceived of had it not been for the role of Symington. Interestingly enough, you know, a few years after the war ended, one of my contacts, dog got loose and was in Borrowdale and was digging up and around Symington's old house, it seems, and ate thallium. It seemed to have been buried on the property. And uh, unfortunately, the, the poor, the poor thing died, but so curiously, some of that stuff may still be buried on properties in, in Harare. So the Symington, I think, is an interesting bridge because in the book, um, obviously in the context of the regime conflict, you have apartheid South Africa and that regime uh, is backing uh, the Rhodesian government and providing support and some intelligence sharing. And so there's some evidence of potential two-way travel between the CBW program in Rhodesia, but also the larger program in South Africa, which would emerge. So maybe it's worth briefly talking about the character of the South African program, and then you can maybe expand upon the, the potential links between the two programs. Okay. Well, to, to step back in some context, Rhodesia is under sanctions, under UN sanctions. The regime is completely unrecognized diplomatically by any country. But there's common cause with the South Africans. Both of them see they have shared interests. 
early on, there's actually a secret alliance between the Rhodesians, the South Africans, and the Portuguese, uh, and it's called Alcora. A pretty fulsome, complete, comprehensive intelligence sharing and uh, share in some military operations. And Alcora, of course, collapses when the Portuguese in 76 uh, withdraw from Mozambique. Yet the Rhodesians and the South Africans continue. Because Rhodesia is under sanctions, uh, it relies on South Africa for fuel, for ammunition, for heavy equipment, you know, a, a great deal. And there are South African forces uh, at periods fighting inside Rhodesia. There were a couple of incursions by ANC through Rhodesia uh, targeting South Africa that were fought to a standstill in, in Rhodesia in the Battle of Wanky early on which really heightens the South African perception of a threat, that if Rhodesia collapses, that their security situation is going to deteriorate. And in a sense, Rhodesia is seen as a, as a, as a buffer. So as far as intelligence cooperation, there's ensuring on intelligent, uh, on insurgent groups, movements. Um, the South Africans have a SIGINT effort that operates inside Rhodesia. And they provide SIGINT equipment to the uh, Rhodesian Signal Corps for a uh, Rhodesian SIGINT effort. On the CBW front, the Salute Scouts receive a great deal of material support from South Africa. There are South African liaison officers assigned to the Salute Scouts. At points, a General Victor, uh, Jan Johannes Victor, a uh, general in the, um, uh, at that time he was a colonel, in the South African Security Police is assigned to Bindura and Shadows McGuinness and actually has a comlink from Bindura directly to Pretoria. And uh, General Victor learns ever, that there are no secrets in Bindura from General Victor. He's fully aware of all of McGuinness's activities and the activities of the uh, Special Branch team in Bindura. At one point, after the transition of Rhodesia uh, to Zimbabwe, Victor goes and takes the concepts he's learned in Bindura. He uh, goes to command what's called uh, the, the C section uh, for counterterrorism section in the uh, security police. And he decides to take the lessons of the Salute Scouts and hire Askaris, Africans, to do much the same sort of work as the Salute Scouts and McGuinness were doing in, in Rhodesia. And Vlak Plaza is now a national memorial to the horrors of the apartheid regime. Uh, it, it literally is, you know, a, a, a place of tremendous, horrendous brutality. And, but interestingly enough, the, the farmstead at Vlak Plaza, virtually everything in it came from Bindura. McGuinness had it all boxed up placed on trucks and shipped to uh, Black Laws. The concepts of the Sleuth Scouts didn't translate terribly well to the South African police and military cultures, so they had to adapt, and the, and the South Africans adapted, so they're not direct analogs. As far as uh, intelligence sharing, I, again, the activities in Bindura were an open book to the South Africans. And as part of the 
Truth and Reconciliation Commission's work, some of the intelligence sharing about the CBW programs come to light, as well as some of the transfer of, of materials. One of the uh, individuals involved in South Africa commented that he got a suspicious phone call from a Rhodesian, clearly using a, a, a pseudonym. I, I forget what the, the pseudonym he was a professor so-and-so. And he uh, provided a document of the lethal dose 50s, a variety of agents on what looked like Saluska letterhead. Uh, and all of these LD50s had been determined based on human experimentation at Bandura, which is something we hadn't touched on, but it occurred in Bandura as well as um, the poisonings, uh, the CBW uh, preparations. So the South Africans were giving that document. In another case, a South African officer inspecting a, a warehouse comes across stacks and stacks of undergarments. And he goes to look at them and is stopped from approaching too near and says he's not allowed, he can't touch those because they're all cont contaminated and came out of Rhodesia. So clearly at the transition from Rhodesia to fully independent Zimbabwe, much of the goods out of Bandura, much of the product of the CBW program, looks like it was transferred to South African Special Forces and the South African Security Police. So we have that transfer. Then we have the question, did the South Africans, were they the genesis of the Rhodesian CBW program? And asked that question to Rhodesians and they adamantly say no, that the Rhodesian CBW program is solely the product of the Rhodesians. Yet, South African technicians did go to Bindura and, you know, asked about that. I was told that, well, that was for specialist military gear, like night vision and mines, special munitions and rifles and sort of things that might have been used in a conventional, in a more conventional military sense, a special forces sense, and not CBW. But it's interesting that some of the same people that went up to Bindura were also the ones that were receiving the, the list of LD50. They had degrees in chemistry and I wouldn't send a, a chemist uh, in an exchange on, you know, armaments. So I think there's clearly an exchange of information between the Rhodesians and the South Africans about the Rhodesian CBW program. Others are perhaps more skeptical. The South African program on paper in all their public declarations begins in 1981 under a part of Project Coast, headed by South African cardiologist named Uter Basson. Now, I'm not convinced that it began in 1981. I suspect it may have begun in 1979. And that's because the South Africans had a three, a small three-person team that studied CBW issues. So of the three-person team, one of them had been offered 
to lead a South African CBD program in 1979. What, and he, he admits to me that the, it was the program that became Project Coast. And, you know, he was offered it before Woodrow Basson was offered it. So I suspect that at least South African thinking about a CBW program, at least their initial concept of a CBW was, was being formulated much earlier than the 1981 date given in a briefing to um, Nelson Mandela. And that basically they're, they're only timing the beginning of Project Coast with the accession to leadership of Wouter Basson. Wouter Basson had submitted to me that he had traveled to Rhodesia on several occasions for exchanges. And some Rhodesians have admitted that they had seen Wouter Basson in the Salut Scout headquarters. That raises some, some further interesting possibilities. I have tried to contact Wouter Basson with follow-up questions, and he's, he's been silent. So we have these tantalizing tidbits. So I leave it as an unanswered question, but it, it, it's one that I politely disagree with some of the South Africans about. I think the Rhodesians had a greater impact on the South African program than the South Africans are willing to admit. So um, you mentioned uh, there is these kind of tantalizing threads uh, in terms of the evidence that's available today. And it struck me reading your book that because the program was so small and because of where it occurred and the context it occurred, um, the written record that we have for many other large scale industrial programs just isn't there. And you were very dependent on first, in terms of Matt McGuinness hand recollections, but also often second hand memories of these, these incidents. Do you think there's much prospect at the moment for new forms of evidence to emerge? I mean, reading your book, it struck me that this was perhaps the last moment in history that that book could be written because there were there is a dwindling number of individuals who would have had the type of information or access that would be required to kind of further our understanding of this issue. All the Rhodesian special branch officers admit that at the end of the war, they went to the crematoria and all the records got tossed into the, there was a massive bonfire. Uh, some documents were kept privately. Uh, some people kept documents because they just wanted to keep them. Um, handfuls of documents remain. Now, a special branch archive was bundled up at the end of the war and shipped to South Africa and went into the South African Intelligence Service archive. There was a court case. The Zimbabweans wanted these documents back and South Africans returned them. I have the index to the archive. Nothing, nothing about the CBW is in the index. It's largely personnel files. It's, it's files on Mugabe and a lot of the, uh, then and current Zimbabwean leadership. So I doubt that we'll ever see those documents. Again, now, the Rhodesian Army Association, the, R the RAA, along with the University of West of England, decided to make a public call to all the old roadies to turn over whatever paper to what would become the RAA archive. And uh, 
at last count I had, they had 1,100 boxes of records from the Rhodesian War. Well, the museum closed. The archive had to find another home. It went into storage. And I don't know where it is now. If there's any in those documents, there that would be interesting. Because those documents have been largely unexplored, unexploited. South African archives, classified archives, might contain CBW materials. That's largely been unexplored, but there's a possibility. I doubt that there's anything remaining in the Zimbabwean archives. So in terms of the the archives, it sounds like there, there may be information out there in boxes somewhere. It's interesting. Uh, as you know, I, I live in the southwest of England, so uh, UWE is, is 25 minutes away from where I'm recording this uh, right now. So maybe we can go, <laughs> go and knock on some doors at some point. It also, of course, brings to mind uh, the current situation at the Harvard Sussex program and the ar- very substantial archive there. And, and hopefully you'll see work being done there to digitize and, and rescue that archive from, from oblivion. Um, now, Thank you so much for talking about the program. What are you working on at the moment, other than the Rhodesian program? What are your current project? At first glance, you may think that the Rhodesian CBW program is an aberration, that you know Rhodesia facing an unusual security situation, yeah, unusual time and place in the world with you know, limited resources, was forced to, to do this. And in, in, in a sense, they were. Um, but I'd argue that they are not unusual. You know, they are an example of, you know, a, a larger trend. And I think I, I make this argument that, you know, understanding the Rhodesian example is, is very relevant to understanding a number of other examples. And that takes, takes us back to a look at the South African program and its genesis. Uh, not dissimilar, you know, again, uh, a state under sanctions, uh, with a, facing a deteriorating security situation. So the Rhodesian example is illustrative of much of the South African program, uh, the, its genesis, its purpose, its circumstances in which it operated. But interestingly enough, it's, it also has value in looking at the Chilean CBW program, which I think is little known outside Chile. And so one of my current efforts is looking at the Chilean program, which was a, a program begun uh, under the Pinochet regime. Again, a, a regime that faced a lot of hostility. And the Chilean program begins in a small, makeshift, rather rudimentary laboratory in an outbuilding of a, of a home in a suburb of Santiago as part of the Chilean intelligence service and employs very eccentric and odd individuals. And I think there's a wealth of material on the Chilean program, much of it in Chile, undigitized in judicial and police archives. I'm I'm working on that. Another one is the use of CW by a group called La Main Rouge, the Red Hand, in North Africa during France's uh, fight to retain its North African colonies uh, 
in the 50s and 1960s, early 60s. Uh, and La Marouge, on a, on a couple of cases, a couple of incidents, is alleged to have used chemical and, in one case, uh, curaria, bi- biological toxin, in assassinations. So I'm also looking at the, the French use of CBW agents in assassination, another fascinating topic. Then, of course, I want to look at, we're going to deal with Russian and Soviet, that's more well-known, Iraqi use under Saddam Hussein, largely a thallium, against dissidents and defectors leaving the country, and against Kurdish leaders. That needs to be explored as well. The goals of all these programs is, is regime survival. It's it, This is not for battlefield use. This isn't for uh, con- use by uh, military forces in any uh, way that we would have thought of in the, in the Cold War. It's regime survival. The targets are dissidents, they're defectors, they're regime opponents, uh, real or imagined. Uh, and there may be use by some other countries rather clandestinely. I'm also looking at uh, CBW use by apocalyptic and millennialist millenarian groups. We're looking at the historical examples of the Rajneeshis, the Amshinrikyo, People's Temple, Solar Temple, Heaven's Gate. So there's there's all of that. Thank you very much for that. I guess it's all left me to say is you know say thanks very much uh, for coming on on the show today. Um, I've having heard what you've been working on. And I know some of the trajectories of your current work and also some of the stuff that we just couldn't get in today uh, on the Rhodesian programme. Um, I've no doubt that I'll be at least uh, trying to badger you to come back on the show at some point to, to come and uh, to fill us in. But so just to say thank you very much. Well, and thank you, Brett. I, I, I've enjoyed it. And, you know, I would look forward to speaking some future point if you have any interest. Thank you very much.